From the K-Rob Collection, this is Audio Antiques, featuring programs from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson. From 1948, we have an NBC interview show called Author Meets the Critics. A special guest is Walter White, who led the NAACP from 1929 to 1955. He joined the organization in 1918, investigating race riots and lynchings. White then developed legal challenges to segregation and voting restrictions aimed at minorities. White tells his story and talks about his autobiography right after this break. Nationwide is on your side. Bring your finances into the 21st century with a My Checking account at Nationwide Bank, powered by Axos. My Checking is designed so you can bank on your terms. This account offers unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, no monthly maintenance fees, and no minimum balance requirements. Nationwide Bank offers Direct Deposit Express, so you can receive your paycheck up to two days earlier. Plus, there's a free app so you can bank on your phone no matter where you are. Open a new My Checking account at krobcollection.com and receive $20. If you are a new Nationwide or Axos Bank customer and deposit $500 into your account within 90 days. Nationwide is on your side with a $20 gift for opening a free My Checking account powered by Axos. Get full details at krobcollection.com. Horace Hyde is moving up to the number one spot in America. Next, Walter White's autobiography, A Man Called White, is discussed pro and con on Author Meets the Critics. And then at two, stay tuned for Every Man's Story and a discussion of cerebral palsy among children. The following program was transcribed earlier, especially for presentation at this time. Welcome to The Author Meets the Critics, where today's guest author is Walter White, Executive Secretary of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and internationally known expert on race relations in the United States. Today's book is entitled, A Man Called White. In a little while, Walter White will meet his critics face to face. Now, here's a sample of what Mr. White can expect. First, the former labor conciliator for the War Production Board and leading reporter on Negro Affairs for the New York Times, Mr. George Streeter. I dislike this book because in it, Mr. Walter White has not tackled the problems faced by the average Negro, who is not a college graduate, in most instances not a high school graduate. The problems of the displaced persons from the plantations have not been answered in this book. And now, with quite a different point of view... The distinguished daily book reviewer for the New York Herald Tribune and one of the oldest friends of this program, Mr. Lewis Gennett. Well, I like this book. Seemed to me it's a dramatic personal history of a white-skinned boy called White who discovers that his people are Negro and decides that he'll be a Negro. And then it's the story of a life dedicated to a cause, the advancement of his people. And the greatest drama of it is that the crusade is winning. Now, there is a preview of the points of view of two critics, pro and con, and we'll hear more from Mr. Streeter and Mr. Gannett later on in the program as they grapple with our author. But first, here's an announcement of special interest. The author meets the critics, always a believer in the excitement of new books, 
would like to suggest that you give a book for the disabled veterans. Books bring fresh ideas. They help open the mind to the world we live in. The veterans in hospitals cannot take active part in the world till they get well. But they can keep up with us and feel themselves a part of what is going on through reading and discussing books. One book is shared by many men and gives them a common ground with us. Now, why not pick out a book you liked yourself and share it with the veterans? Not something they may have read in school or college. Not some battered novel long since grown stale and forgotten. But a new book, right off the press. One which people have just begun to talk about. One with a challenging idea or an absorbing story like the books discussed on The Author Meets the Critics. Give them a serious book like the one we're discussing today, A Man Called White by Walter White, or one that will make them laugh like Bennett Cerf's new collection of anecdotes called Shake Well Before Using. Now, later in the program, we'll tell you where you can send a new book for the disabled veterans. And now, meet your regular chairman of The Author Meets the Critics, John K.M. McCaffrey. Good afternoon, everyone. Walter White, the son of a mail carrier in Atlanta, Georgia, first understood what it meant to be a Negro when, as a little boy, he stood with his father in the front window of his house waiting, gun in hand, for a mob to attack his home. This was a turning point in his life, for it made of him a crusader for racial understanding and justice in America, the guiding spirit of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. His book, entitled A Man Called White, tells not only his own story, but the story of the battle for racial justice in our times. He gives both the theme of the book and his own credo when he says to himself, I am white and I am black and know that there is no difference. Now, before he meets his critics, with a brief account of his dramatic story, is our guest author, Mr. Walter White. Thank you, Mr. McCaffrey. The first suggestion that I should write an autobiography was made by the late Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt some ten years ago. I resisted his persuasive arguments, arguing that only a man at the end of his career or afterwards should write the story of his life. To me then and now, the most fruitful years of work and living seemed to lie ahead. And I argued quite sincerely, I did not believe that there was a sufficient body of accomplishment to warrant an autobiography. Teddy Roosevelt dismissed both contentions summarily. He pointed out that an autobiography by me would have at least the significance of being unusual in that it was the story of a man who could have belonged to another race but had chosen not to pass. And as for the age at which one should properly write the story of his life, Ted pointed out that many youngsters of 20 and 21 years were at their time writing autobiographies. He added somewhat pointedly that even then I was considerably beyond the age of 21. <laughs> a man called White has been most generously and even charitably received by the reviewers. As a matter of fact, the only all-out condemnation of the book which I have seen to date appeared in The Daily Worker. Some reviewers and correspondents have made the quite valid criticism with which I am forced to agree that the book, especially the latter two-thirds of it, is more a biography of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People than the story of my own life. In a way, this was inevitable, since the last 30 years of my life have been devoted, nights as well as days, to a struggle against race hatred in the United States and other parts of the world. Perhaps someday, when the day-to-day -day pressure has lessened, 
I may try to tell the story of what made Walter White the individual tick instead of what Walter White, secretary of the NEACP, does from day to day. I can only hope that that story, if and when it is written, may find as warm a reception from critics and public alike as has the story I have tried to tell in A Man Called White. Well, I think, Mr. White, that we can guarantee you a warm reception from at least one of your critics, uh, George Streeter, from his opening remarks. I think that Mr. Gannett, too, has uh, warmth for you, but I think these are different degrees and kinds of warmth. Mr. Streeter, do you want to expand your opening statement? Oh, there are all kinds of warmth in the world. I don't want it... uh... I don't want to be misunderstood that I don't love Walter White. But loving Walter White, I think I should uh, point out that in the 30 years that he has been with the NACP, the race problems and the race programs uh, and the race ambitions of Negroes in the United States have materially changed. When he came into the work, there were 8,490 members of the association, his book tells us, and less than 100 branches. Today, there are 600,000 uh, members in uh, 1,500 branches scattered all over the United States. Instead of a handful of intellectuals meeting each year to talk about uh, the problems of the race and how they should be faced, the mass meetings, which I have attended regularly now for the last three years, are attended by church leaders, labor leaders, common workers, cooks, porters, school teachers, every stratum of uh, society and Negro life. And these people are asking, are beginning to ask louder and louder, not only for a larger measure of what they call democracy, actually they are saying, uh, we know that the lynching horror is, is passing. What are you telling us for the future? What are you going to tell us about how to make a living? Well, do you think that the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People is not giving that answer, Mr. Streeter? I don't see uh, uh, that the present program reflects that at all. I'm very much afraid that the program hasn't grown in 30 years. Now, Mr. Gannett, you have been observing this growth yourself. It seems to me that it's a pretty effective handful of intellectuals that have uh, built that organization from 6,000 to 600,000. There must be some mass interest in what the handful of intellectuals was doing. And what they were doing, as I read Walter White's book, was fighting against lynching, fighting to get the right to vote for the Negro, fighting to get the right to go to school, equal schools, equal payment for school teachers, equal rights to go to college, even now into graduate school. And I don't see if there's any objection to a Negro being a graduate student, even if the mass of them are still laborers. It's opening hospitals to them. It's fighting Jim Crow laws. It's saying that if they're good enough to load ships for the army, they're good enough to fight. And I find it a pretty inspiring record as I read this book. Mr. Streeter. Oh, it isn't that I'm disputing the the fact that the association has got into this business. Uh, In the beginning, however, the intellectuals, uh, and I'm not speaking disparagingly of the gentlemen and the ladies who were there, uh, they didn't feel the mass pressure because the mass has had no pressure. I'm not speaking of communist mass pressure. I'm speaking of the needs of the laboring masses of the Negro people. Now, the association has grown uh, in membership, mainly because the, the average man, the average Negro in the United States, and a few white friends, have felt the need of such an organization. And uh, I think they felt that the organization was answering the need, Mr. Streeter. Well, it's like everything else. Uh, you take the best thing that's offered. But the confusion that has taken place in the organization and its various branches of the last 15, 20 years that I have been in position to notice has made me feel that the people in New York who direct the organization need to consider seriously and bring into effect a program that will meet the needs of the 
mass population of the United States, Negro population, that now turns to the association. Well, I don't know how Walter White could write an autobiography about what's going to happen in the next 20 years. He hasn't lived them yet. This is the autobiography of Walter White. This is the story of his boyhood, of how he got into this work, and of what's been going on in it in the last 30 years. I think it'd be fine if you'd write a book that would criticize mm -hmm. the association and tell it what to do for the future. Oh, but in the but, last uh, chapter, but in the last chapter, Walter predicts, and when, he, when you predict, that means you have a program. Walter says that the tide is rising, that the, uh, and uh, I think that's kind of magnificent to read about. I think to read that a thousand students at the University of Oklahoma in what is in some ways the most bigoted part of the South, the Southwest, have a mass meeting saying, we don't object to Negroes coming to college, let them in. To read of the uh, organization on the campus of the University of Texas, of the only all-white branch of the NAACP, the only segregated branch by white students at the University of Texas because they don't like what's going on. That indicates that something is happening and fermenting not only in the masses of the colored people in the South, but in the younger generation of the whites in the South. And I find that rather inspiring to read about. Well, I think that we uh, should hear now from the man who has been talked about on this program. And, Mr. White, you've been indicted rather severely by Mr. Streeter, uh, your organization, and yourself. He has told you that your organization has no adequate plan for the Negro in the future, and he has implied uh, obliquely, perhaps, that you yourself have no philosophy adequate to take care of the needs of the Negro in the future. Do you want to answer that indictment? Well, I frequently agree with him in my own mind. <laughs> uh, there are uh, many times when there are problems so perplexing, so difficult. They're dealing with filibusters in the United States Senate, dealing with lynching mobs, fighting discrimination and segregation, that it has to be a constantly growing program. And I disagree with George in the fact that uh, he says that there is no program that we still have the same program we had 30 years ago, and that just happens not to be true. It's a vastly different program. For example, he talks about I'm not doing anything for the working men. Well, I don't think that the secretary of the NAACP would have been invited to speak to the CIO annual convention a few days ago if we were a snooty group of intellectuals with no knowledge of what's going on in the world. We are not a perfect organization. We are not as large as we hope to be. We hope that there will be a very much larger interest on the part of white Americans because this is not a race problem. This is a problem which involves the bodies of black men and the souls of white men. And coming recently from Paris where I served as a consultant to the United States delegation to the General Assembly of the United Nations, I was appalled at how our shortcomings in this country, filibusters in the United States Senate, lynching, the perpetuation of segregation, the perpetuation of discrimination against racial and religious groups, is causing the prestige of America to be lowered around the world. So I think it's the job of white America and of Negro America, and we are going to continue to do the best job we can with the tools at our command. Mr. Streeter. I have the feeling that when the CIO invites Walter White to speak at its annual convention, that they are saying to, uh, to the association and to Negro leaders generally that the time has come to uh, relate all the phases of the Negro problem to the working class problems of the United States in general. Now, uh, I am saying that while some leaders of the association have talked about labor organization and labor unions in recent years, particularly during the war years, uh, it is still true 
that Negroes have practically disappeared from the hotel trades in most of the large southern cities. It's still true that Negroes have practically been driven from the building trades in all of the southern cities except perhaps two, maybe three. I, I think of New Orleans, Memphis, and in South Carolina in one or two spots. Uh, that Negroes have uh, not uh, maintained their strength in the railroads. They've lost their positions as firemen and as uh, uh, the other skilled crafts which uh, are denied in the North. Now, these are problems which I believe concern uh, the NACP as much as the problems of the graduate student. Mr. White? Yes, of course. It is true that Negroes have been ousted from a great many jobs as waiters and cooks and porters and bellboys in southern hotels. But Mr. Streeter conveniently and unhappily ignores the fact that hundreds of thousands of Negroes have gone into the automobile, the steel, uh, the rubber, and other industries. That today the membership of one million CIO members in the South, of that membership, 40% of them are Negroes. That a very large and important segment of the labor movement, especially in various industries like the electrical industries, as well as the ones I've named, that Negroes are in there, they're on an equal footing without segregation in union locals, and they are playing a notable role in the labor movement of America. I think it's more important to get a skilled job in one of these industries than it is to wait on table. Lewis? Well, obviously, Walter White and George Street are no more about it than I do, but... Obviously, also, for a superficial student of the labor movement, even a book reviewer knows that the record of the labor movement in the last half century toward Negroes has been scandalous. And it has been changing in the last 10 or 15 years, partly because of the work of people like Walter White. But I still think that it's sort of a mistake in a... uh, program called The Author Meets the Critics to uh, talk quite so much about uh, the book the author didn't write and uh, so little about the book he did write, which I found kind of interesting to read. Uh, I see, Mr. Streeter, do you want to answer that criticism? Well, of course, that's uh, known as one of the uh, ways to answer criticism. Uh, But uh, back to the question of these waiters and cooks and porters. Uh, Ten million Negroes still live in the South. (laughs) The masses of Negroes live in the South. Uh, I don't think there's anything discreditable about uh, being a first-class waiter, a first-class cook, or a first-class worker in any of the uh, general services. Uh, It's still true that a first-class cook is better paid than a first-class college professor. Those things are not to be ignored. Now, a first-class cook is not somebody who simply picks up a pan and and a uh, bucket of grease and throws in a steak and begins to cook. He's a trained worker. He's a craftsman. Now, I'm uh, uh, emphasizing this in a measure because I believe that this uh, more or less middle-class uh, uh, direction or the middle-class uh, point of view of the association has caused larger numbers of Negroes to ignore the value of training for certain types of occupations. Now, uh, a worker in the Ford plant... Well, would you plant, blame Mr. White? Did Mr. White's uh, blame... philosophy for that? Oh, no, I don't blame Mr. White as such any more than you blame uh, any individual preacher for the uh, backward trend, say, of, uh, of religion as a uh, factor in race relations. But I'm speaking of uh, organization which uh, leads and gives leadership more than any other single body to the uh, 15 million Negroes in the United States. Mr. Gannon? Of course, I was just tempted to say that this question of first-class cooks doesn't seem to me to be purely a race question. The only first-class cook I've been able to get work for me for a long time is my wife. 
And I'll bet you're paying her considerably below yes, standard wages, Mr. Gannon. That's true, and uh, we eat out a good deal lately, too. Well, now, <laughs> uh, to tell, uh, tell me this, uh, Mr. White, in view of, of what uh, George Streeter has said about the NAACP, do you feel that uh, this criticism is justified? Do you feel that, that you are asking the Negro to accept a, a middle-class life rather than to train for the, the trades? Not in the least. That isn't at all true. In fact, I would like to welcome a document from Mr. Streeter of the program which will do all of the things immediately which he proposes. We are not working for the middle class. We are working to raise every standard and to break down segregation and to open every avenue of opportunity all the way from the lowest profession up to the highest. And we say that color should not be a barrier to one's doing that. Well, now, Mr. Streeter, where does this philosophy of Mr. White's come into the book, A Man Called White? We know that there a large part of it is straight autobiography, the story of, of Mr. White's struggle to attain a, a human sta status, really, for himself and for his uh, uh, fellow Negroes, uh, and a great deal of the book is devoted to that. Now, these other questions, uh, do they arise out of the kind of training that he had? Is it peculiar to Walter White? Why do you to disagree. What is there in your two biographical backgrounds? Uh, Our biographical backgrounds are the same. We both graduates of Southern Colleges for Negroes organized by the American Missionary Association. It can't be that. Something happened to us since that time. Uh, I believe that what has happened mainly is that the type of work one, uh, uh, one has to do over a long period increases or decreases his understanding of certain areas of the population. I'm simply maintaining that I have I've uh, been thrown into situations to realize that the masses of Negroes of the United States actually have no leadership. Uh, we believe they have leadership, but actually they have none. Uh, now, uh, I have talked about uh, trades, but I actually mean two or three things other than that. Uh, we have nothing in the association, and why do I name the association? Because it is the representative organization of Negroes in the United States. There are no competitors. I say there are no competitors. Nobody has the power, the influence. But now there's a question... Why not? Well, that's one of the things. Why not? Now, uh, once you, uh, whether you ask for it or not, once you're thrown into the position of being the leader of the masses of people, uh, one must uh, become concerned with these things, and it cannot be done. Uh, Walter can't do it exactly. Uh, I would say the board of the association is more to blame than Gentlemen, Walter. Gentlemen, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to ask you for summations, and I'm going to ask each one of you to make a one-minute closing statement without interruption. But while you're preparing your statement, here's a special announcement. Do you want to give a real lasting pleasure to someone who deserves it? Yesterday was Christmas Day, and I'm sure that someone did something for you that made you happy. Would you like to share your happiness? Well, there's no one in this country today who deserves it more than the veteran in the hospital. We have no greater debt than the debt we owe to the men who went off to strange lands to fight for us and came back hurt, handicapped, their future uncertain because they tried to ensure ours. Although more than two years have passed since the fighting ended, these seriously wounded men are still waiting to go back to normal life, still hemmed in, away from family and work and pleasure, enclosed by hospital walls. While they're struggling to regain their health, what they need most is not to feel left out, not to feel cut off from the ideas, events, and dramas which fill the days for the rest of us. But the only way they can share with us is through their minds, and this means chiefly by reading. Sharing books with them means sharing ideas, sharing the stuff of life itself. Would you like to help them feel that they too are a part of the world they fought to save, 
Would you like to help them jump the barriers of pain and discomfort and join their thoughts to ours? Well, buy a book, a new book, moving novel, an interesting biography, a book that discusses the state of the world or the state of the Union. Buy a book you like or one you have been wanting to read yourself and send it to our veterans. Every veterans hospital has a library. To save you the trouble of finding out for yourself which hospital needs new books, the New York Veterans Administration has agreed to ship the books. All you have to do is choose a new book and send it to the following address. Library Division, Branch Office Number 2, Veterans Administration, 346 Broadway, New York 13. I'll repeat that address. Library Division, Branch Office Number 2, Veterans Administration, 346 Broadway, New York 13. All right, now, gentlemen, you have time for your summations. And first of all, to you, Louis Gannett, and we give you your time to sum up A Man Called White, uh, the book called A Man Called White, and even some remarks on George Streeter, if you care. Well, I, it seems to me that uh, this complaint that the masses of the Negroes aren't included in a program which is getting them to vote, getting them schooling, getting them a chance in the hospital, only beginning to, not going far enough, that that complaint hasn't much validity. As I read this book, A Man Called White, it begins, as I say, said, as the personal story of a boy choosing his race, a boy who can pass, whose skin is white, who had passed, gone down into dangerous situations where lynchings had occurred, passing and almost being run out of town when he was almost discovered. Going back from the relatively liberal atmosphere of New York... To find his father was equally white-skinned, taken into a hospital after an automobile accident, and then carted out through the rain because they discovered that despite the color of his skin, he had Negro blood. And of that man going on to fight for his people, but not bitterly. And of the gradual victory of democracy and process of evolution. Not an adequate victory yet, a victory that needs... A lot more fighting, mass fighting, and I hope more fighting by a handful of fighting intellectuals who lead most battles in most countries, even class war battles on both sides. But it is a story of uh, American youths forcing their elders to be better Americans, and I think that's a pretty fine kind of story to read. Thank you very much, Mr. Gannett. And now, George Streeter, for your summation. Uh, the summation that I would make uh, would be the summation one would have to make not only for America today and American Negroes, but for the people of Europe, for example. Uh, we have reached a point in our, our development of education in this country where we have to ask ourselves if there's any such thing as an oversupply of intellectuals who have no means of uh, making a living. I believe that political action is very necessary, but I believe at the same time that political action is not everything. Uh, I believe that uh, Negroes should be encouraged to go into small business. They should be encouraged to use their efforts, the monies of their secret societies and their lodges and their banks and their cooperative ventures to build decent housing projects. But on all these things, I could have have injected this, uh, this observation that I'm not so certain that the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People is at all certain on what is segregation and what is not segregation. Whether it is certain that a housing project uh, arrived at by a group of Negroes on a cooperative basis in a large city is a segregated undertaking or a worthwhile undertaking. Personally, I believe it's a worthwhile undertaking. And the longer I live in Harlem with other of my friends, I'm uh, of the opinion that groups of Negroes in New York ought to find money to build on plots of land. Now, is it cooperative or is it uh, segregated? 
Uh, I don't believe the NACP has given Negroes the right position on those things. The same thing goes for our so-called Jim Crow Union in a community where the white unions don't accept Negroes. I believe that they should be organized even if in a Jim Crow Union. I've uh, certainly had my differences of opinion with the association in the past on that. Now, in all these things, I think it could be reduced to this. Uh, whether we are uh, mapping a program for the fortunate few or whether we are mapping a, pro uh, a program for the unfortunate many, the masses of Negroes are still unskilled, unleaded, untrained, and in the course of two uh, decades, they will still be untrained. Thank you very much, Mr. Streeter. And now for a man called White, Walter White, do you your summation. Thank you. First, I want to express my appreciation to Lewis Gannett. I'm delighted that he liked the book. <laughs> As for Mr. Streeter, I would have been much happier had he reviewed my book and me instead of reviewing what should happen 10, 20, 50 years hence. He suggested we should... Encourage small business. Well, you have just so much money, just so many uh, persons to work with. You can't do a job, the entire job, and we don't pretend to do the entire job. I hope Mr. Streeter will organize a movement to try to build up small businesses. I think there's an ample feel for that. I disagree most violently with him on the question that you should accept segregation in a union, uh, a trade union, or anywhere else. There can never be any equality whatsoever within the framework of segregation. I've always been opposed to it, and as long as there's breath in my body, I'm going to, going to oppose segregation. He says that we're not doing anything for the masses. Well, 600,000 of them, the largest civil rights organization in the history of the world, is the NAACP today, which looks like 600,000 don't agree with Mr. Streeter. He uh, scoffs at political action. Uh, it happens that there are now one million Negro voters in the South and three million in the North who played a most strategic and important role in the recent election and is creating new respect for the Negro and helping him to get some of these rights and to hold on to them in a democracy. I believe in democracy and I'm, I'm going to continue to fight for it. Thank you very much, Mr. White, and I'm sorry, gentlemen. The time's up for both the author and his critics. And now here's Mel Brandt to tell you what lies ahead on The Author Meets the Critics. Next week, the guest author on The Author Meets the Critics will be H. Allen Smith, irrepressible fun maker in print, author of Rhubarb and several other humorous books. His latest, called Locks in the Popcorn, is an account of the author's country life. Be sure to be with us on the first Sunday of the new year to hear H. Allen Smith meet his critics. And now, back to John McCaffrey. Before closing, I'd like to thank Walter White for coming here today to discuss his new book, A Man Called White, and to thank you, Louis Gannett, and you, George Streeter, for joining us. This is John McCaffrey saying good afternoon for The Author Meets the Critics and sending you the heartiest good wishes for the new year. The Author Meets the Critics is produced by Martin Stone and was directed by Van Fox. This is Mel Brandt speaking. Now, if you should want to send a book to a hospitalized vet, as was suggested earlier on this program... Here again is the address. Send your book or books to Library, Division Branch Office Number 2, Veterans Administration, 346 Broadway, New York 13. The program you just heard was transcribed earlier, especially for presentation at this time. Now, just a reminder, if you're going out driving this afternoon, won't you please be careful? The roads are in none too good condition, and remember that the life you save 
may be your own. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. If you're tired of outrageously expensive cell phone bills, come on over to Mint Mobile. Talk, text, and data plans just start at $15 a month. There are no contracts. Sign up and Mint will send you a SIM card. Just insert it into your phone. You can even keep your old number. So don't make your cell phone provider rich. Keep that money in your wallet. Go to krobcollection.com for details on Mint Mobile. I hope you are enjoying Audio Antiques, our Golden Age radio podcast. If you are, why not subscribe and tell your friends? For more information about our shows and sponsors, check out krobcollection.com. Our music is by HBeats. That's HBeats with a Z. I'm Ken Robinson. Thanks so much for listening.